Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. At a loss for gift ideas for the special dancer in your life? Stressed about Secret Santa gifting? Stress no more. Jewel Dancewear's best-selling meshy crop tops and tights come in a gorgeous array of dusty jewel tones that stun. You may find yourself wanting them in every color, so if you can't decide, go the gift card route at jeweldancewear.com. As a special holiday treat for Conversations on Dance listeners, use code HOHOHO15 for 15% off your entire order. More information is in the description of this episode. The holidays are right around the corner, and if you are looking for a great gift for the dance lover in your life, we have the perfect place to start. As longtime listeners know, we have covered so many great dance books on the podcast, so we have compiled a list of our absolute favorites. Check out our COD reading list at the link in the description of this episode or on our website, conversationsondancepod.com. This list has over 20 titles from Friends of the Pod and some of our longtime favorites for essential reading. Support Friends of the Pod this holiday season while supporting us too. Shop the COD reading list now. Our friends at Trey McIntyre Projects have launched a new website, but it's not what you think. TreyCool.com, spelled T-R-E-Y-C-O-O-L.com, is a curated funhouse of what is happening in creativity in the digital realm. It's a non-linear dive into the unknown, organized by serendipity and happy surprises. New posts every day, Monday through Friday. Check out TreyCool.com for a daily dose of fun and inspiration. I'm Rebecca King Ferraro. And I'm Michael Sean Breeden, and you're listening to Conversations on Dance. As Nutcracker performances returned to stages around the world, we decided to celebrate the return of the beloved classic by chatting with friend of the pod, Alistair McCauley. As a historian of the performing arts and the former chief dance critic of the New York Times, Alistair has a wealth of information to share with us about the history of this ballet that has become a staple for schools and companies across the country. We chat about the ballet's origins, elements of the production that have been lost over time, different versions Alistair has reviewed, and finally he tells us which production he finds to be the best. For his current musings on dance and the performing arts, visit alistairmacaulay.com or visit the link in the description of this episode. A 
Hi, Alistair. How are you? Rebecca, lovely to speak to you. Lovely to see you. Great it's so nice you. to have you back. Uh, how many times have you been yeah. on at this point? I, have, I haven't dared count. A perennial favorite. So. <laughs> it, it's a great honor always. Thank well, you. for today, we're going to explore the Nutcracker, which is a subject, um, you know, I think anyone who listens to our podcast is quite familiar with, but uh, we wanted to delve into, of course, it's history, which is a subject that I think you have a pretty decent grasp on. Um, <laughs> so, uh, especially since, you know, it feels especially relevant last year, most nutcrackers were unable to happen due to COVID. So we're all, you know, it's kind of nice to have that year off because I think everyone's excited again about it. We don't have nutcracker fatigue this year. Right. So <laughs> let's just start with, with, uh, from the beginning and, and get a little bit of info Actually, about how. Let me just ask you, because you're, you two have been dancers. Do you get nutcracker fatigue before you start a season or do you just get it when you've done 12 or more nutcrackers. You know what's funny? Um, so this past weekend, Miami City Ballet was um, in Washington, D.C. doing the nutcracker. I wasn't able to be there, but Michael went and some of our other friends who are retired went. And I was talking, Michael, to our friend Lexi. And I was like, how did you do, you know, like seeing the ballet after you've retired? It was one of her first times because of COVID. And she's like, I don't know. I just started crying. And it's so and we were texting about how it's funny because you in the moment kind of hate it so much, but then also Nutcracker is like the one that hits home after you're done. I think it's just because it's like you do it every single year. So there's like a real nostalgia for it. I feel like every year, don't you think, Mikey? It is, I have to say, a much more American ballet than it is a European or British ballet. Sure. Right. Yeah. Um, the worst productions are probably Russian ones, ironically. <laughs> they really are terrible. None of them follow the original scenario. They, they mm-hmm. usually Russian productions uh have little clara or marie growing up to become her adult self in the sugar plum often with the same ballerina uh and i'm never very keen on that it can be very well done i think the best version of that one is the ratmansky one who has children but then he you see them change during act one into their adult selves just as a vision and then it happens again for the grand pas de deux Right. That's a really good point because there are so many versions too within not just of the dancing, but within the story as well. Mm-hmm. So oh. let's talk you know, about how it kind of originated. How what was the first version of that kind of story? Well, there's a lot we still don't quite know the details. Um, mm-hmm. and the particular strange thing is the ending. I mean, when I did when I 11 years ago did a nutcracker marathon of America. I always used to think the good thing each time was, how does it end? Well, the one thing I've never seen is how it originally ended. Mm. Um, I'm jumping to the chase here, but the original 1892 production ended with, I think, a drop curtain coming down in front of the vision of the Sugar Plum's Kingdom of Sweets. And suddenly you saw the Kingdom of Sweets as if from outside, as if it was a magic hive with mm. dancing bees in the foreground. I think mm. they were children from the Mariinsky School. Uh, so suddenly you've seen one kind of sweets and then you see a vision of honey being made, I suppose, by bees. Oh, interesting. So, so strange. I mean, it's, it's a pretty strange story, so may as well have a strange ending, I guess. <laughs> to answer your question properly, what's, what, was, what was in the mind of them in 1892? Well, what's fascinating is what's unusual. Most of the ballets we've been watching tend to be, or many of them in Russia, are about princes and princesses. And this is about a middle-class family. Oh, true. Uh, most of the ballets, almost all the ballets that survive from the 19th century are about love. Nutcracker is not really about love at all. 
Mm-hmm. Um, of course, many versions change it into a love story, um, but that's not what the makers of the ballet had in mind, and I find it works really well with that. Mm-hmm. Um, it may be implicit, there's a great friendship that grows that is huge between the child Clara and Marie and her nutcracker prince friend, and of course we see some kind of celestial harmony between the sugar plum fairy and her cavalier. Um, but it doesn't need to be romantic love in either of those relationships. I find it better when it's not. So that's what's probably unusual. It's, and the fact that it's a ballet about childhood is really unusual. Mm. Um, with a child protagonist, Clara, as she originally was called by Petipa, um, Marie, as she is in the Hoffman story. Um, and as you know, she goes on this magical mystery tour. And there are... It, it, People who don't know the Nutcracker think it's going to be a really kitsch ballet, don't they? Because they think it's all about kiddies and about sweeties. And there are, I was just thinking today, I think there are five bits of music that change, that blow your mind, that take it way out of the scale. I don't think even Petra had any idea what Tchaikovsky was going to come up with. Hmm. The first is, of course, the amazing Christmas tree music. And there's no dancing. You just hear the same da 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 going up and up and up. It seems forever. Um, and all you see is scenery change in a great production. Uh, that's what happens in the traditional version, sort of, at the Royal Ballet. And that's what happens, as you know, in the Balanchine and many other American productions. Then uh, perhaps the most phenomenal bit of music in the store and the most ambiguous is what I call the transformation music. And people around America tend to call it the snow par, right. uh, because right. it's often a pas de deux for the snow queen and her king or whatever. Um, but really, Tchaikovsky, I think, just intended this to be scene change music. Mm-hmm. And there may not have been anybody on stage, as far as we know. Mm. Uh, quite often, uh, it's been a, a mixture of scenery change and some dancing. Um, I, I wish I'd gone to the ballet a little bit younger, earlier in my life, because I missed the old festival ballet production, which began in 1951, with designs by the great Alexandre Benoit, who had worked with Diaghilev. Uh, and I think he reproduced something like he'd known in Russia. And apparently just the effect of one scenery going up and then another and then another was just the most thrilling thing. Though there was a pas de deux in the foreground, you kind of didn't look at the pas de deux because just the great thing was the scenery. Just and then, of course, those of you who know Balanchine just knows that the, he is the one person who dares not to have any dancing, as Tchaikovsky and Petipa intended. So I was, I was thinking about that. Like it, in Balanchine's version, of course, like you mentioned, it was just those scene changes in those moments. Mm-hmm. What do we know, if anything? Did Balanchine know that? Did he research that? Was that instinctually what he He wanted? would have known the, what, the, the notes that Petipa sent to Tchaikovsky. And we have quite a clear plan of action in the Tchaikovsky score for what we what Tchaikovsky expected. Balanchine didn't follow Tchaikovsky's action in every detail. Mm-hmm. I mean, for example, after what we call the March of the Choice Soldiers in the party in Act One for the, the sort of march for the little boys, uh, there's a new bit of music that was intended as the um, entry of characters called the incroyable, which is the French word meaning the unbelievables. 
And if you look up incroyable, it, this was a particular form of French absurd high fashion in the early 19th century. Oh. And these people are coming in fancy dress to the Christmas party, incroyable fancy dress. And Tchaikovsky absolutely meant that. Petrova particularly knew what he was going to do. Um, I've never seen a production that has incroyable. Huh. So funny. Uh, I have seen one or two American productions that had new party guests, adult party guests, arriving at that moment. And that feels really right. Right. Most productions just go on with the guests, the children that we know. Hmm. Right. That's so interesting. Can we talk a little bit about uh, just how this project even got off the ground? Who decided that the Nutcracker would make an interesting ballet to begin with? Was it a, a particularly popular book or story? Or um, Well, of course, it begins with a great story. Was it written, I just forget the date, 1816 by E.T.A. Hoffman. And E.T.A. Hoffman, who also wrote the story, which is the basis of Coppelia, uh, was one of the great romantic fantasist stories. He was also, by the way, a composer and a critic in the early 19th century. Oh. And there's a streak of darkness in his kind of fantasy novels uh, that appealed to the Russians immensely. There wasn't like anything else in fiction that they knew. Uh, and that's why Delib made Coppelia, and that's why Tchaikovsky and his colleagues uh, made the Nutcracker. And Tchaikovsky, of course, was doing this as a sequel to The Sleeping Beauty and to the opera of the Queen of Spades. Um, and the Queen of Spades is a fabulous opera with a lot of darkness in it, mm-hmm. uh, quite sort of psychotic edge in it, which is fabulous. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were looking for the next uh, work to do. And they not only did the Nutcracker, they did it as a double bill with Tchaikovsky's opera, Yolanta. So it's a long double bill. Yolanta, I think, is about 90 minutes long, and I think it's usually done in one act. Uh, And if you listen to it, the first half is a bit stodgy, um, but actually it then grows, and it becomes, if you see a good production, a kind of psychodrama, nothing like the Nutcracker, is to do with a blind princess who is visited by a man with whom she gradually falls in love and love cures her sight. Um, mm. It's a bit frightening. You will only see if you want to see, and love is the transformation that will enable you. Uh, and a good production is very frightening, wonderful, but nothing like the Nutcracker at all. So Tchaikovsky is a way of saying, I'm a virtuoso, I can do this kind of opera with psychological undertones, and I can do this kind of ballet, which is childhood, brightness, sweetness. So was the book popular enough at the time that it would have like sold tickets? Is that kind of what they were thinking? Like everyone really likes the story. If they see the Nutcrackers coming, they'll come to it. Or was it really like they were inspired by it? That was the impetus. Hoffman was not unknown in Russia. I mean, he was already quite popular. I don't know that he was a huge vote thing, but they, the Nutcracker was far from unknown. And what's more, he had been translated from his German into French by the great Alexandre Dumas. And it was Dumas who changed the name of the heroine from Marie to Clara. And Hoffman, Clara is really the name of Marie's doll. Uh, but Dumas changed that. And that's why the ballet has Clara as the heroine in most versions. I'm wondering, how much do you think being on this opera double bill um, impacted the initial reception? Because I, I feel like that's a lot. You know, you're, yeah. you're like, you've already sat through a 90 minute opera that is completely different in tone and then you're seeing the nutcracker so it, it's um i mean you know. that, that when it was new i think yolanta was respectfully received they were not ready for this over the top production 
by Pechepa, or really the choreography was by Ivanov, but Pechepa had set the plan and he had worked with Zevolovsky, who was the impresario of the Mariinsky Theatre, about what the designs would be. And it just seemed too um, sickly sweet, too over the top in the decor and costumes. Uh, for the Russian critics. The one thing they could see was that Tchaikovsky's music was really remarkable. Mm-hmm. They could hear it, rather. Um, but the production didn't fulfill that for them. They just weren't ready for it. Um, I don't know that it was changed much over the years, but I think that ending about the bees uh, got dropped pretty early on. <laughs> uh-huh. I don't think that's even in the notation which was brought to the West in the 20s by um, Sergeyev. When Sergeyev mounted the first Western Nutcracker um, at Sadler's Wells here in London, uh, I remember asking people in the, when was it, I suppose the 90s, saying, were there bees at the ending? And they said, no, no, we had <laughs> So what happened next? It was not initially a hit. What was its next life beyond there? Well, Tchaikovsky died the very next year. This is new in 1892. He died in 1893. He was the most successful composer Russia had ever had. Mm-hmm. So they went on repeating just about everything important by him. And the Nutcracker gradually became a habit. And as you know, uh, young Balanchine danced in it. He appeared as a child in it. According to one bit of writing, he danced or played the role of the young prince, the Nutcracker Prince, when he was 15. Mm. And then when he was a young adult, he played the role that we in America, well, Americans now call Candy Cane, the Trepak, um, which is a very interesting story altogether because he was he inherited it really. It hadn't been choreographed by Ivanov. It was the one bit where Ivanov was in a hurry. And so he said to his colleague, who's, what is his name? has gone straight out of my head. I beg your pardon. Um, anyway, he said to this Russian colleague, please choreograph this number for me. Uh, the colleague did and stayed around for years. It's possible that he may have taught it to Balanchine. Balanchine certainly inherited the tradition um, pretty well step for step because this, why can't I remember this man's name? He was also a pioneer in movie making and he filmed both himself and his wife dancing, but he also filmed animation. And one way or the other, he recorded exactly how the steps for his beloved uh, Trepak Candy Cane dance should go. And if you check that out, it's just about step for step what Balanchine reproduced in 1954 oh, wow. for his Candy Cane. Um, there are one or two steps that have got changed, of course, over the years than Balanchine, but there is a silent film of Bobby Barnett, the original Candy Cane, doing it in silence. And I know he has coached um, Alexander Peters of Miami doing it. So it would be nice to know if Alex Peters is doing the Bobby Barnett version or whether he has to compromise and do a later version. I have not to check. But I know he loved working with Bobby Barnett. Right. We'll have to ask yeah, him. <laughs> I think I would have preferred the Bobby Barnett version because what I've heard is that until Dan Dan Duell did it, there were no doubles. Oh, that's I I think I remember the worst. Um, yeah, I mean it was just like he was he was I think did he do gymnastics or something as a kid and so he was just I think fooling around and could do it and then Balanchine was like okay sure. Um, so I I love Dan Duell, but I will hold that against him for the rest of my life. <laughs> 
<laughs> as a dancer. I love seeing when people can do it. It's been on Facebook because uh, Daniel Duell, Daniel Duell does talk about it. And once in a blue moon, Robbie Bobby Barnett joins in the conversation. So I must check what he says. Oh. But at least he has filmed it for the Balanchine Foundation with Alex Peters. So check with Alex what he says. Are you sure? We'll ask him. Yeah. <laughs> So in these early days of the Nutcracker being performed in Russia, uh, about how often was it performed? Was it attached to a Christmas season as we know it? Or is that something that like the commercialization of Christmas happened later and people didn't do these traditions like that? I think that got changed later. I don't know that it was a particularly Christmas thing. But it, I mean, of course, it does have a Christmas party night one. So it's a, the best time of year to put it on just for common sense. But I don't right. think... Christmas was quite the uh, shopping bonanza then. <laughs> sure. <laughs> so when did it become a tradition in the U.S.? What was the first um, U.S. nutcracker? Well, a lot has to do with Balanchine, but but uh, but the Nutcracker suite itself had become popularized. Tchaikovsky didn't select those famous numbers that get into the suite, but as you will know, better than me, uh, people often talk about the Nutcracker Suite as if it was the name of the ballet. They just know the highlights mm-hmm. and they think that's what it is. Uh, it's a very popular piece of music. And I think the first American stagings, probably in the early 40s, uh, were just of the suite. And of course, Walt Disney choreographed a fabulous version of the suite in Fantasia, which I think is a lesson to everybody because it shows you how you can be very musical and completely find something else in the music than what the scenario was originally about. Above all, I would hold up his Vaults of the Flowers because it doesn't have flowers and it doesn't really have dancing in the sense, but I think it is as great as Balanchine. I have no higher praise. It is phenomenal that Disney Vaults of the Flowers. It is, it's true. And all of it, like are just wonderful. I actually wonder how much that went into what was the time period there then when it started to become much more popular? Fantasia's early 40s, is that right? Fantasia's 1940. Okay. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Um, I think it's the been around the same time. suite was often done in concerts anyway. Tchaikovsky, uh, I mean, and you must remember one of the most fabulous things is that Tchaikovsky was the most popular and uh, acclaimed composer, Russian composer outside Russia in history. And he came to America between composing Act One and Act Two. Mm. And I'm sure that entered the nervous system. He had the, one of the biggest successes of his career before he composed Act Two when he was in America. But then there's this strange thing that also happened. Um, on his way home to Russia, and he touched down in France, he found that his beloved sister, Sasha Davidova had died. And she was like, an, she was an elder sister. She was uh, like a, a surrogate mother to him. She had children. He was the best uncle to these children. And suddenly to lose this woman broke his heart. And there is a theory. Um, remember that one of the poignancies of traditional crackers is that Drosselmeyer, the magician of Act One, never meets the sugar plum of Act Two. Uh, there's this tragic gap between them. And it's as if Tchaikovsky is Drosselmeyer and is dreaming of this creature he never meets. She has died implicitly. If you take a biographical reading of it, that's his seeing his sister. And the musicologist Roland John Wiley, who wrote a very important book in 1985, Tchaikovsky's Ballets, which takes us into these, all three of Tchaikovsky's Ballet, the music better than ever before, while researching the original productions. Um, 
Wiley, not in his book, but elsewhere when he was writing the book, wrote an essay called On Meaning in Nutcracker. And he believes that the rhythm of the parida, the adagio, da 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 you know that, those mm-hmm. skating schools, scales, are taken from the um, memorial chant for the dead in Russian Orthodox Church. And he thinks that's exactly the rhythm that occurs with the chorus, the choir, uh, when the oh. dead are being remembered. So Tchaikovsky's thinking of I mean, if you think it's such a strange bit of music to write for the Sugar Plum Fairy, it is tragic music mm-hmm. in some ways. Yeah. That's why. But he takes death and turns it into sublimity. You hear these falling scales with this extraordinary tragic rhythm again and again, and it becomes glorious. It's real occasional sublimation. Mm-hmm. I think I've gone way away from your original question, but I we are kind of ground. We possibly. wanted all the, all the tangents. That's what, <laughs> what we're here for. We want, we want, Tell me what your people, question. <laughs> you know, people have an idea. Like I think even m- most, many people, certainly people that listen to the podcast have um, a base knowledge of maybe it's history and background, but we want the B sides, you know, right. <laughs> the literal B sides. <laughs> let's dive into your tour of nutcrackers a little bit you already mentioned it briefly at the top but how many did you see as part of this what did you say 11 oh no i saw i i I did maybe two before thanksgiving and i was pretty well on the go so i saw at least 27 productions I thought it was 28, but when I tried counting later, I could only think of 27. Maybe there's one I could be. <laughs> I saw some of them, of course, more than once. Mm-hmm. Um, it was the year that the Ratmansky one was new, and it was quite amazing to me to have seen my 25th Nutcracker the night before, which was the very good one in Richmond, Virginia, and then to turn up to BAM for the premiere of the Ratmansky production and thinking, well, let's see if I can find anything new in Nutcracker after all of what I've been doing. It was something like the 22nd of December, maybe the 23rd. Uh-huh. Uh, there was I, ready for the Ratmansky Nutcracker. Um, and then along comes, in his Waltz of the Snowflakes in Act One, a twist I've never heard before, because you know there is the voices off, the children's voices. Mm-hmm. Um, normally, no production ever responds to the voices. They're just an extra effect. Mm-hmm. Ratmansky absolutely brings out the voices, and they become the voices of the snowflakes. And at first, they are siren voices, luring the children to lie down in the snow. Mm-hmm. And then they become really much more cruel, dangerous voices when they return. Uh, and that and Ratmansky brings that out in the way that the children react to it, and the way the snowflakes on stage behave. And I'm thinking, how many nutcrackers have I seen? And for the first time, I'm really hearing what may be in these voices. Phenomenal. Wow. Yeah. The general lesson is there's just such a rich score. You can go way against, as Disney does, the original intention of the music, and you're going to find more. Tchaikovsky, from the overture onwards, is doing so many different things. I mean, I, I was listening to that overture that we think we know, and by the end, he's bringing in syncopation where you think, I don't know where I am with the rhythms. Mm. He's starting with extra beats. Uh, and from then on, he's playing with duple time, triple time against each other, blah, blah, right throughout the whole band. It's phenomenal. Wow. Michael, have you seen it? Have you seen it? I haven't had, I have not had the chance to. Yeah, I'm a big Alexi fan, but I, I just, it's, they're always in California doing it. I think. Right. Aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> you know? 
they've, I mean, they've done it here. It was a ban for five years, but it's not really um, a BAM type of nutcracker. The BAM audience, which tends to be trendy, loves the Mark Morris hard nut. And that year, they had actually both the Mark Morris and the Ratmansky, but just the audience flocked to the Mark Morris. Right. It's the right audience. Whereas the ABT audience doesn't want to go to BAM. The ABT audience wants to go to Lincoln Center or City Center. They want right. Manhattan. They don't want to leave Manhattan. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm curious, in, in the 27 productions, I mean, there must have been a really broad range of interpretations um, choreographically. But what, what would you say is some of the the most surprising decisions like like the the snow scene with Romansky like what 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 else kind of like took you aback with um some of those well, the satirical nutcrackers because of course there are ones that try to make it about sex and they're just naughty fringe nutcrackers uh-huh. uh which have a lot of underwear um, um and it, it's it, it seemed like a fun idea actually i find i'm sick of it after about one number <laughs> Um, and I haven't even seen there are, but there are productions called the Slut Cracker and the Butt Cracker. Blah, blah, blah. Um, I think I've mentioned the Russian tradition of Nutcracker of having the heroine danced by a young ballerina, and then you see her become the tutu grand ballerina in Act Two. Um, that isn't done by many American productions, but America does have always touring Russian productions. I think I saw both something called the Great Russian Nutcracker and the Greatest Russian Nutcracker in the same year. <laughs> uh-huh. They both had that basic idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, but my very first Nutcracker was a version of that, really, because it was Rudolf Nureyev's. I think it's now danced by the Paris Opera Ballet, but he originally staged it for the Swedish Ballet, and then in quick succession, the Royal Ballet took it on. And I saw it with Rut Nureyev himself. And it's kind of Freudian. Um, that is, Clara uh, sits on Drosselmeyer's knee, as you might expect with um, the child and her godfather, except she's played by an adult ballerina. And the Drosselmeyer is played by Rudolf Nureyev, or the leading dancer of the company. Uh, and when it comes to the battle, the Young Nutcracker is taken by a young, played by a young dancer, but adult in the company. After the battle, suddenly you see him transformed into, guess who? Rudolf Nureyev. Drosselmeyer becomes the Nutcracker Prince. Uh, And after the battle, when that music changes and you begin the transformation music, there is... Rudolf Nureyev, as I remember him, but I suppose I also saw David Wall doing the role, standing there, and then Clara burries back to join him. It used to be a very goosebump moment, you know, to, right. to just bury in a, um, what's the word, wiggly line back towards, uh-huh. as if drawn by magic until she was by his side. And Nureyev did something choreographically that was unusual in the 60s, which was of having a idea where man and woman dance the same steps side by side, adagio, quite a lot. I can't remember if it went off into lifts, but I do remember them doing the same adagio steps a good deal. I think Ashton had initiated that in the dream, but Nureyev took it further. Mm-hmm. There's some really 
bonkers stuff in that. I, it's popped up in a in an Instagram feed now and again, and it, I think it starts with a prolonged balance in arabesque. Like they they both just go up to susu and extend their leg, and but it's like a sixteen count balance, a choreographed <laughs> balance. Yeah, I'm just like, really, how many people fall out of that? <laughs> Chris, if you see the film, and it was filmed with Mel Parker and Rudolf Nered, you can just see particularly that she is a little uh, calculated. That wasn't how it felt like. It really was theatrical magic if you didn't know your Nutcracker and you weren't a connoisseur. I was straight away into the goosebump aspect of Nutcracker. When I later got to know other Nutcrackers, I thought, oh, I don't need this Freudian take. And she, they really went Freudian stuff, by the way. Act two was retold so that she kind of was haunted by her family in the form of bats. And she had to fend off her family uh, to find true love with uh-huh. Rudolph. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'm thinking about these different interpretations that you saw. And one thing that I did want to ask you about was the additional music that Balanchine's version adds in. So I have two questions. Um, tell us a little bit about how that came about, that Balanchine added that. And then did you find any other productions that added music in in unexpected places? Yes, I'm, um, there are. Uh, there have been at least two other productions that added other music. Balanchine's was probably the first. But I seem to remember that the old Kent Stowell production for Pacific Northwest uh, it added some music from the Queen of Spades. And maybe Memphis Ballet had some music from Eugène Onegin the opera also. Um, But Balanchine started it, uh, and he did it simply because he needed more music for a scene change. (laughs) Uh, And being a clever man, uh, he found exactly the right piece of music that was in those days almost never heard from the Sleeping Beauty. It's an entr'acte just for scene change in Sleeping Beauty, and it's orchestral, but it features in particular a solo violin. So it's like a concerto. And uh, Marinsky had a very famous leading um, violinist in those days, Leopold Auer, who was the great virtuoso of the day. And he played this. Um, Balanchine brilliantly revived this music. Um, and, but he makes it not just an entree, not just scenery music at all. He takes you right into the heart of the Nutcracker, which is such an extraordinary thing to do to music that isn't from the Nutcracker. He takes you into the drama for little uh, Marie, Clara, uh, looking for her Nutcracker with this Nutcracker, which is still a doll, and then her mother coming when Marie is asleep on the chaise longue and coming to look after her, very touching, putting this, what we call it, shawl over her daughter to make sure she's safe for the night. Little does she know what's going to happen. And then up comes Drosselman, the godfather, the godfather, uh, who makes sure that the scene is ready for magic, also touchingly fitted to the music. How Balanchine did that is, well, that's part of his genius. And he can do it because the violin music involves something like the same rising scale figure that we've heard in the Christmas tree music. So there is a connection. You can tell you're listening to non-nutcracker music because the instrumentation is different. There is a slight dote, um, but it's only a slight one. Mm-hmm. Right. If, you if know, you're a purist and you're, you're used to European nutcrackers, I can tell you that interpolation is a major shock. And when right. that's seen in Britain, everybody's going, oh! <laughs> <laughs> Once oh. you get used to it in America, it's great. But, uh, you know. Right. Yeah. You know, um, something I... I I think that moment is so beautiful 
And um, it's interesting as a, you know, as background and for, for people that did not ever perform in this production, it's one of the most coveted roles among women in the company there. Everyone is like begging to do that part. Rebecca danced that part many times. And it's just something that I, I mean, think the mother. the mother. Yes. Yeah. Um, Rebecca, you can speak to it. Like what makes that feel, what makes that, what makes everyone want to dance that? It's just, it's such a fun role and it's cool to interact with the Marie so much. And that moment really was like one of my favorite moments of doing the role too, was being able to have that moment. You walk in, at least in Miami's production, you walk in front of the scrim, like you're looking for her. So you're kind of outside, you know, in the hallway and then you come around and then you're in the back room where she is and looking for her. And it's just such a, it's a, such a fun role to do. It makes party scene a little more fun, you know? (laughs) Um, But I always love doing that unless you had to do snow right after, which is a nightmare because you have to take your hair down for that moment. And then you have to put it back up and like all you have is battle scene. So if that happens, it was a little less fun. (laughs) (laughs) Around New York City Ballet, there used to be people who would keep a litany of all the details that had changed to Balanchine's Nutcracker since Balanchine died. And one of them is that Heather Watts, around the time that she filmed The Mother in that 1993 one with Darcy Kiss was the sugar plum, Heather Watts was the mother there, that she played the mother with her hair already done, as if she was on her way to bed. She started it? And it's been a moot point at City Valley ever since whether the mother should have her hair down or not. Oh, I think it's so nice because, yeah, and then we like at Miami City Valley, we had like a little bonnet that we would put over. Sometimes I would do like fake hair so that it, you know, and you could hide it kind of underneath. But yeah, I thought that was like the nice, it was casual. I didn't think Heather was thinking she might go on in the snowflakes afterwards. (laughs) I don't think she was doing (laughs) that. It had been a minute for her. (laughs) She wasn't worried about that, no. Um, I want to know, and I don't know if you can interrupt, but there is another reason why that's so touching is that, of course, Balanchine lost his mother very early on. He went to boarding school. He seldom saw her after he went to the Mariinsky school and never saw her once he left Russia. And, uh, you can read a lot of Balanchine's life as a line for the woman he lost early on in his life. You know? mm. and I think in his great relationship with his friendship with Karen von Rodigan, a very romantic friendship, she had a German name very like that of his mother, I think. So there's all kinds of maternal connections going on about it. Yeah. I've read, um, I had read that before. I had heard that maybe, I don't know that he ever literally said that, that Karen reminded him of his mother. But in, in John Clifford's book, there's this little just a bit at the end where he's talking about when Balanchine was really, you know, in and out mentally, um, the one person he would always want to talk to was Karn and he would call these, I guess, have a landline, the stage manager. He'd call the stage manager while Karin was um, performing. Oh. And in between entrances, she would pick up the line and just talk to him. Like, and, you know, of course you think like when people, when you're like, when you're leaving the world, like that's something very common, like you want your mother. And, and more moving than think that, that is a tale in Jacques D'Amboise's memoir, um, I'm a Dancer, where... Uh, he talks about how people passed uh, the dying Balanchine really with Karen von Rodigan cradling his head in her arms and singing a German lullaby to him. And I think Jacques himself says every bit of generosity and love that Balanchine gave her, she gave back and she looked after him at the end. It's very, very touching. Ugh. 
crying. Sidetracked. <laughs> Sidetracked for tears. There's always time for tears so on the beautiful. podcast. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's so beautiful. Uh, okay. To think of other, uh, and to give you examples of the new details you can keep finding in the score, um, one that I never expected was in the kind of stole Pacific Northwest production. If you listen to the beginning of Act Two, as you arrive at the Sugar Plum Kingdom, the Kingdom of Sweets, there's a wonderful effect of the piccolos, the woodwind, doing sort of upward shrieks, the liop, the liop, the liop, mm-hmm. and it's full of like childish excitement. Well, the Kent Stowe production, which was designed by Morris Sendbeck, at that point had dolphins leaping out of the waves, and they leaped exactly on those shrieks in the woodland. Oh, and cute. I always miss them every time I hear that music now. Ah, that's funny. Um, yeah, I love that. example is in the Mark Morris production. I don't think his version of the Sugar Plum solo with that Celeste is on the whole my favourite. Um, and it's danced barefoot by the adult playing Little Marie. Um, but... You know, the end of all that Celeste phrase, there's a bassoon figure that goes, Dum! at the end. Right. You know? mm-hmm. And normally no choreographic version responds to the Dum! Uh-huh. But Morris has that kind of slump with mm-hmm. emotion at that moment. And so I always think of Mark Morris every time I hear the Dum! figure. Uh-huh. <laughs> you, just, you just were speaking about the Sugar Plum Fairy, and it made me think, how many productions have the same... Um, trajectory like Balanchine's does where the sugar plum fairy dances her variation with the angels at the very beginning. And then the potida is just um, the potida and the coda. Is that common? I think that's only Balanchine has the nerve to do that. Yeah. Um, Balanchine, that's supposedly so musical is the one who often takes the biggest liberties. He brings mm-hmm. in music from another ballet, as we said, speaking beauty. He cuts a solo, the solo for the sugar yeah. plum cavalier. His proper name is Prince Coquiche. Uh, I've uh, never heard that. <laughs> I, I didn't know that. That's I wild. Can't remember what it really It used to be translated wrongly as Prince Hoopinkoff, and somebody <laughs> it's really the name of a delicacy, but I can't remember what kind of delicacy it is. Anyway, uh, and then he moves the Sugar Mom solo, which is kind of wrong because. Tchaikovsky knew that his greatest effect was bringing in the Celeste, which had never been heard in Russia before. Right. And he was terrified that Rimsky-Korsakov might discover the Celeste and play it in Russia before he did in the Nutcracker. So he kept it as secret as he could. Uh, and he brings it in very late in Act Two, in the context that Tchaikovsky meant it. So to bring it in earlier robs it of some of the suspense. And that should, of all the many magic sounds we hear in Act Two, the Celeste should be the last of them after we've heard all the other suites and so forth. Mm. Um, so Balanchine is in a way undermining the music in that respect, but of course he is doing other things dramatically by making us know the Sugar Plum at the beginning of Act Two right. and showing her establishing magic and her extraordinary connection with these child angels. Right. Mm -hmm. So sometimes when dancers are given permission to do Balanchine's choreography on a gig, you know, at a a local production, dancers that like who perform it within the the companies they are associated with, um, the, the gig will ask them to do it as a, you know, a traditional pot of like not have the sugar plum variation in the beginning. And the people that have to do that, they're I just did like, that. it is death. It was so hard. <laughs> like to do the balancing platita and then the women have, because that, you know, that little Tarantella, the, the coda is, or sorry, not the coda, but the male solo rather is like, let, it's about seconds. a minute long or less than a minute. <laughs> and then, so the women have to do platita, tiny break, hard solo, 
hard code. <laughs> it's crazy. I think, that's, I think that's quite standard for people. But I also know that at New York City Ballet, I mean, maybe true at Miami, that men found it killing to go just straight from the adage into the code. Yes. It's one yeah. of the hardest changes, which is what Valentine asks. Yeah. Right. It's, it's like a unique, different challenge. Yeah. 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 You'll notice. I mean, I. it's funny. I always think. I've actually seen this as a note. People will be like, okay, can you please walk to the corner a little bit faster? Yeah. Like the men are always trying to take their time, time. to get a, a breather in. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. Alistair, if you had to choose, what would be your favorite production of The Nutcracker? Um, I can tell you all the things that are wrong in the balance sheet, but it is to me the most satisfying nonetheless. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have watched it dozens and dozens of times and the faults don't go away. And it still doesn't matter. It is just a larger journey of the spirit than any other. Um, And if there is a scene that I could single out, it is the one in which nobody dances. It is the one I've been describing, the transformation with the sleeping heroine fainted, traveling on her mysterious bed uh, around the stage. And then this nutcracker coming in sideways out of the wings, looking so strange, and then suddenly this fabulous metamorphosis. And the fact that he arrives in Tondu's side says so much. Mm-hmm. Tondu with Valentin is always a magic sign. Right. Mm. So I, I, I love that moment as well. I think it's so, I mean, aside from the tree growing, it's the most emotional moment in the ballet for me. And I was really, this past weekend when I saw Miami City Ballet, I was, you know, really feeling the feelings and you see the prince step out and you know i of course i know what's about to happen but i had never ever seen this happen before the poor thing got like the costume almost took him back off stage when they were taking when it peeled away from his body Oh no! <laughs> he went with it, and he had to like yank his himself away. The audience is like, "Oh, oh, okay, okay, oh, we did it." No. And you know, he immediately, you know, once it was sorted out, the audience burst into applause. And, right. Um, oh. You know, but it is a, it's a very special moment. But until that that show, I I didn't realize that it was complicated. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. And Balanchine also solves brilliantly the walks of the flowers, um, as you may remember. I wrote about that in the New York Times, but. Um, that is the hardest single dance number to choreograph. When you've seen 27 productions that I did that year, but I've also seen many other nutcrackers, most choreographers just run out of ideas after two, three minutes. And you're right. more of the same, or they're taking each idea a little too long. And she moves on every 20 seconds. It's really mm-hmm. phenomenal. Yeah. Um, I find even, even very good choreographers like Mark Morris, I find they're a little too simple there. There are other very good snowflakes waltzes, and I wish somebody would uh, reconstruct Ivanos because we have that in notation. Mm-hmm. Originally, the Royal Ballet production was said to be Ivanos. It's not at all. It's just taken one or two ideas and notations, but they were all musically wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, Doug Fillington will do it if he can find about 50 dancers. <laughs> <laughs> that makes me think, though, about snow. Was that very common to have, like, no, because Balanchine's version doesn't have a snow queen or a snow king. Is that very common or was that because I that's one thing I always thought was so cool about it was it was really just the core like spotlight on the core there's so few moments really where it's there's yes, no and that was Petipa's idea just to quote about it snow there was no snow queen in his version mm-hmm. um and as far as I know there were no well maybe there were snowflakes and ballets we don't know about you know there's so many 19th century ballets that are long lost mm-hmm. um I think Jane Pritchard the British historian 
feels that there was a snowflake dance by the French choreographer Henri Justement, who was also something of a notator. So Pochepo may have been picking up on ideas that, thank God he did, because we only know his version now. Mm-hmm. Which, as I said, is on a choreograph when Pochepo fell Yeah. But another thing that's wonderful to go on watching is most productions around America use not the Balanchine Paradeur, but the Ivanov Paradeur. How close it is to Ivanov, we don't know. It's slightly different wherever you see it. But my favourite figure, um, it's also done at the Royal Ballet, um, to that the first huge statement of that descending scale. You already heard the descending scale about four times, but now it comes back big force. And the ballerina prepares tongue front and then she runs to her cabinet and then with her back to the audience, which is so strange in 19th century ballet, she does a quick développé à la seconde with her arms en haut, en courant. And then she peels down into penché. Mm-hmm. Now, if that's well phrased, that peeling it from the high second and the arms on all in fifth to go down to it absolutely matches the scale in the music. Mm-hmm. But it took me a lot of listening before I suddenly read, oh, I see what Ivanov's doing. He's really responding to the pattern in the music. Mm-hmm. And different ballerinas will phrase that in a different way. I also once on my mouth and suddenly saw it as an image of a fruit with your arms open like you know, a flower or something, and then suddenly it peeling open as if it was the opening of petals. And mm. um, that was fabulous too. Thank you for that demonstration. I wish everyone could have seen that. That was very beautiful. <laughs> you were demonstrating the movements for us. Yeah. You, yeah. <laughs> it reminded me I, that I, yeah, I danced that when I was like 13. I hadn't thought about that until exactly that moment with your demonstration. Yeah. I could see my partner doing that at me. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that was a fabulous moment in the Balanchine that comes from the original. Uh, is the moment when she steps onto a disc that magically carries her across the stage. Now, that came from the Mariinsky, and I think Balanchine told some people, I don't know if this is historically true, that there really would be stagehands underneath the ballerina who would travel, um, absolutely carrying her from one side of the stage to another. And, of course, you never saw the stagehands, but there they were underneath the foot. Wow. Now it seems so simple, since they've just got a sliding disc, but they needed culture in those days yeah right. i love that like there's like so much of the magic in nutcracker is just so simple i mean it's a sliding disc it's just you know a little bit wider than what a point shoe is uh, and then you know the bed scene which we've already discussed as being so beautiful is just a man under a bed pushing it <laughs> you right. know but when yeah. you're the, when you're a kid and you see it for the first time i'm just like how do you do that like is there like a trap door that's just moving thing you know i just you know yeah it's so cool how simple it is and like yes, you know, a lot of the magic of nutcracker is really to do with the mothers that we never see behind the stage because every performance has so many nutcrackers in the and so many mothers sorry in the audience and when peter bowe first danced uh the sugar plum cavalier i think i was there in 1983 and um, it was the year that Valentine had died no 1985 i beg your pardon i was over there that year um there was some mothers in standing room and one said, oh, I remember him in this role. I remember him in that role. And one mother said, I remember him when he was the bed. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Peter okay. Ball, the green boy underneath the bed. <laughs> See, bed boys, they're essential and they, you know, they do other things too, not just the bed boy. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Alistair, um, for taking on this, taking us on this journey through Nutcracker history. Um, I know I can't wait to see 
another Nutcracker later <laughs> this season. Every, I, I've seen my first on Saturday. Oh, good. Yay. Well, yes, I hope that everyone enjoys it. Miss- America is the place to Nutcracker. I do love watching so many productions there. Yeah. And I have seen Clara and the Nutcracker, or Clara getting into a yellow cab at the end of the ballet. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> that's so good thank you Alistair so much thank you. To you. all right take <laughs> you care too.